please take out the insert that is in your bulletin. You'll need this as during the Advent season I have a special series of really of meditations that I'm giving, uh, different from uh, my normal approach in working through books. I'm taking the theme of the line of Jesus, the line of Christ, for these four weeks. The season of reflection, and this reflection leads us to celebration. And so we reflect upon what God has done in providing Jesus as the fulfillment of all the many promises of the Bible. In the Old Testament in particular, the New Testament recording Jesus' actual coming, his finished work on the cross, uh, looking forward to uh, his coming again for sure. And so it's a time of reflecting, and that, that causes us to celebrate as believers, knowing our sins are forgiven in Christ. And so I'm taking this series uh, through the genealogy of Jesus, taking four people in the Bible who are appointed by God to fill a certain role in bringing Jesus to earth, to bring him uh, to save us from our sins. We started with Adam, which makes sense, the first human being, and we are all in Adam sinners. He was our federal head, like our legal representative, not only physically, uh, do we descend from him, but morally, and, and he was our, our federal head and represented us uh, before God. And he failed. He fell and sinned. And so we were conceived in iniquity as a result. We're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But the connection with Adam and Jesus that I tried to point out last week is that Jesus comes as the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. And when we have faith in Christ, he becomes our new federal head. He's our representative. We are now right with God through Christ. And that's the Adam to Christ connection that I wanted us to reflect upon last week. But in telling the story of Adam and Eve in the fall, God reveals another important person who will play a role in this redemption that God is working out. And the verses I have placed there are for you to look at as I walk through them. Sometimes I'll read the context around the verses and explain to you what it has to do with our topic, uh, but be ready to look there with me, and I'll now refer to just a few of them. The first passage in Genesis 3, as we start to have this introduction to the next person, is right after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. God first, you remember, confronts Adam before Eve, and Adam responds by saying, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. He wants to blame somebody else. The first result of our sin is to blame somebody else for it. Then God goes to the woman and says, why did you eat? And in verse 13, just a few verses before the one I'll read here in a moment, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceive me and I ate. So she gives the excuse that the serpent is the reason. It, but it's true. I mean, the devil came into the serpent and the devil tempted her to sin. The devil, in that sense, is the father of lies. Uh, he is the evil one who brought this about. Yes, man's responsible, but there's no question that the devil or the serpent, thinking of them as one now, is responsible for this temptation and really plays this part in the fall. So God turns to the serpent and curses the serpent personally, uh, makes it to crawl on his belly and eat the dust. But then in verse 15, maybe the most important verse, at least in the order of God's revelation or revealing of his good news of the gospel, maybe the most important verse in the Bible. 
is it tells us how the rest of the Bible will unfold, how the rest of the figures in the line of Jesus will figure in. Look at Genesis 3.15 as I read. God says, he's talking to the devil, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's the plural seed of the serpent, those who are now in Adam, dead. But he's talking about bringing forth a singular seed from the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the forecast, the first forecast of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Now, several thousand years go by after the time of Adam till we are introduced to Abraham, who is our second figure. Between chapter 3 and chapter 12, there are only two major events that Moses records. Many other things surely happen, but two major events. One is God preserving the seed by not wiping out the earth as a result of man's sin, by one man, Noah, and his family saving him through this flood. And the seed survives so that Messiah will come. God keeps his word. That takes up a good portion of the chapters between Adam and Eve and Abraham. And then the story where man again sins, doesn't follow God's command to go spread out on the earth and multiply. Instead, they locked down in Babel and tried to build a town that is really in the face of God, to to counter God's sovereignty and grace and greatness. They make this town and this tower to reach into the heavens. God, of course, comes down. That's the exact word Moses uses to describe what God does. He has to come down to even see the tower that they think is so big. And he scatters them by changing their language and forces them to spread out. Those are the two stories, the story of Noah and the story of Babel, before we are introduced to this man. This man who has no religious background that we are aware of other than whatever the pagan religions were in Ur, where he lived. And we pick up in Genesis chapter 12. God's introduction to Abraham. I'll start a few verses before, and you have verse 3 there before you. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's his name at this point, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now that's a big deal because your family's all you had. That's where you got what you uh, would live according to, to multiply. It's a big deal. What God is calling him to do is massive. Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See the purpose for why he will do this. Then in verse 3, the passage there noted on your insert, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It says in verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
Now, it took some time for God to continue to unpack all that he was calling Abram to do. And we pick up again in Genesis 17, uh, God restating this promise to Abram. And I have for you verse 4, but I'll read the verses that lead up to it. 24 years have gone by. Genesis 17, 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, and this is the verse there printed, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God gave Abram a new name to denote his new identity. He was no longer Abram. He was now Abraham, the father of many or the father of nations. So now in Genesis 12 and 15 that I didn't read, but 17 also, now we have a clear-cut indicator of the seed that would come to crush the head of the serpent. We now know where it's going to come from. God hones in on Abraham to be this father of the nations, and, and now we're going to start to picture how it is that God will work out the seed so that Jesus would come. Let's pray as I lead us. Lord God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for giving your spirit so that we might understand what you have revealed and how to apply it. Lord, over these weeks of Advent, we are doing some reflection on some very important people. These people were sinners like we are, in need of redemption through Christ, just like us, but you did use them in the process of bringing forth Jesus. Lord, as we reflect on their lives and the importance of your placement of them and working through them, please make us more thankful for Christ. Give us praise in our hearts and celebration in our families and in our church about the reality that is ours in Jesus. He has saved us from our sins. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One common experience for most Americans is that we don't have to go too many generations back to find our ancestors having come from somewhere else. We're a relatively new nation. Most of you know grandparents or great-grandparents who came from Europe somewhere or some other continent. And here we are as this relatively new nation of people with backgrounds that don't go very far back in this land. And one common discussion I would have with my father on a regular basis, maybe, maybe the one that recurred most often after I became an adult, was why did his father decide to come to this nation from Sicily in the early 1900s, before World War I. Now, if you look at the history of that nation and that island in particular, it was, it was a terrible place to live at that time. It was in poverty. It was, it was, uh, it had, there was plague that had struck that area. Really, to work, the only way to sustain yourself, there were two different jobs. Basically, if you lived on the shore, you were involved with fishing somehow. If you lived inland, you basically either were a farmer, if you had any land, or you were a sulfur miner. And most of the men were sulfur miners. My grandfather was. What made him think that going from the sulfur mines of Sicily would be better about the coal mines of Pennsylvania? 
because that's where he went. That's what he was going to. And his existence for the first years were no better, maybe worse, than they were in Sicily. He could not read or write. In fact, we have documents that he merely puts an X on because he can't even write his name in Italian, let alone uh, come up with some English words. He doesn't say his name right, and so they give us the name we have, which everybody thinks is something other than it is. Uh, it was De Felice, but it became Felice, and I have cousins who have Felice with an E on it. I have some that say Fletch, like they're English. Do I look English to you? Some think I'm Spanish, as a matter of fact, or thought that anyways. But the name got messed up because my grandfather couldn't write or fill out documents, and so whenever a child got baptized, the priest, whoever it was, would put a new name down. And despite having 12 uh, total children, my grandfather had multiple different names represented. His existence in this country was not better than it was in Italy. It just was not. What would make him decide to take Basically, a a cheap ticket on the third level of a cargo ship. Multiple times, he came over once, then someone told him about their sister, who he married without having seen, my grandmother, went back on a ship and then came back over. And this was not the love boat he was on. This is in 1911. We have a ship manifest. And as as soon as he comes over, you have World War I breaking out. And then on top of that, his first boys, he has 12 children, nine are boys, eight of them got drafted. One died in World War II. Several were injured. This is his existence to come. What was better about this? Now, it wasn't good in Italy either. There's no doubt. But I wonder what makes a person do this. I never got to meet any of my grandparents. And as my father and I talked about this, it really strikes me, and I I hope I'm not making too much of it, but I think it's personal. I think that my grandfather believed, and I think maybe many of your grandparents believed, the same thing all of us really strive for. They believed by doing this, by making this sacrifice, by taking this risk, they would make life better for their children. And if not their immediate children, maybe their grandchildren would be able to have a better life than they forecasted for themselves where they were. I think that he loved me even though he didn't know me, and he proved it by doing just that. Because he didn't have a happy life. It wasn't what we would call a good life. Not like most of us live or are allowed to live because of someone else at some point making that move, making that sacrifice, doing something. I think that you are driven, all of you are driven, myself included, in some way by a hope that we can make life better for our children. Maybe you don't have children, you're part of this church. These children are your children too. And you want to see this church, these families You want to see stability in the young people of our church. You want to see them rich in Christ and stable in Christ. Yes, you want to see material blessing for them. You want to see them do well, to to carry out vocations that glorify God and and really uh, create a blessing for humankind. But you want them to know Christ and be stable in Christ. And you would do just about anything. Most of us parents would, grandparents would, do anything to see that devotion in our children. We would want that more than anything else. And we would give up many things to see it happen. There's really no greater promise or blessing that could be given than to tell me that my children will walk with Christ and that my grandchildren will walk with Christ. And I think about this as a church. When we're all dead, I hope our great-grandchildren are still, some of them that are still in this area anyways, and the many, many more people are worshiping in the same pews you're worshiping and singing the same hymns that we're singing right now. They're a different group of people, but they're, they're the same in many respects, and they're children of the promise. And I think that that's what is so magnificent and so 
profound about the words that God says to Abraham. Just a pagan guy who lived in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And God, the God of the universe, says to him, Abraham, Abraham, leave this place, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your children. I'm going to bless your children's children. And if anybody messes with your children, I'm going to mess with them. What could be a greater promise you could tell anybody in any time frame, let alone Abraham living in 2000 B.C.? I don't think there could be any greater motivator or thing more important to us than the knowledge of our children's success and prosperity, especially as believers, meaning spiritual success and prosperity. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram, tells him all these things he will do for him. In Genesis 17, he restates the promise and even attaches a physical sign to the promise, binding himself by an oath. Then in Genesis 22... We have a culmination of, of events in Abraham's life that reveal the faith that God has given to him is active and it's living and it's going to be used of God to grow something great and the seed will come eventually from him because in his old age he gives Abraham and Sarah, his wife, a child in his very old age. And it still seems unlikely that God could possibly fulfill making uh, his descendants as many as the stars in the sky or the sand, grains of sand on the beach, but that's what he says, and here is Abraham in his old age with just one child, and God requires of Abraham with that one child that he would be willing to sacrifice him. And we read the account of him telling Abraham to take his only son and sacrifice him. And you see Abraham, with little hesitation, do just what God says. And I truly believe that the interpreters are right when they say that Abraham believed God so much that if God were to keep his promise, and he did fulfill this command to sacrifice his son, that God would raise his son up again. And he goes up to sacrifice Isaac, and as he's ready to sacrifice his son of the promise, an angel stops him because he's proven himself, and God is proving something to, I, to Abraham as well, building Abraham's faith. And then we read the passage that's also put there on your insert, the next passage, Genesis twenty-two fifteen through 18, and we see what else is promised to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham. You know, other figures in Scripture are more types of Christ, or picture, pictures of aspects of Jesus' ministry. But Abraham's different. He's the father figure. He demonstrates the father and the father's willingness to give his son And of course, God the Father does not hold back the knife so that we could be sons and daughters of Abraham. You know, there are several promises made to Abraham throughout Genesis 12 to 22. These promises find their ultimate fulfillment not in Abraham's day, not even in the history of Israel. 
they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. Think of what some of the promises are. They have some immediate carry out and fulfillment, no doubt, but they also still await fulfillment when we have our place in the final promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth, the ultimate resurrection that will be ours in Christ. Listen to some of the promises. One that we can note, Abraham would receive special favor from God. God would bless him personally. God would bless his immediate descendants, and we see that in Abraham's life. Abraham is saved from terrible circumstances on more than one occasion. Even when he messes up, God sustains him. Another aspect, another feature of the promises to Abraham, Abraham would receive land for his descendants to dwell and become an actual nation. And God did provide this for the Israelites. I know there's lots of discussion today about how Israel somehow, the the nation of Israel somehow still is owed land. When in reality, in 2 Chronicles, we are told that to Solomon, all the promises, every one of the promises made to Abraham were fulfilled in him. They got the land. They didn't manage it well. They didn't do what God said to do regarding the land, but they got the land. God was faithful to Abraham and his descendants. Also, Abraham's descendants would become a nation. Not any nation, but a great nation. And great not in the sense that we usually think of greatness. Not because they were so militarily successful, although they were, in miraculous ways. Not great in so far as their, their riches and, and, all, and their economy, although they did experience this. Not great so much in their land and their agriculture, but they were in this as well. But great because of what they were spiritually and what they would give to the nation spiritually. There could be nothing greater than bringing forth Messiah for all tribes and tongues. Every one of the promises that God makes to Abraham are fulfilled in a greater way than Abraham could have possibly imagined. The final aspect of the promises to Abraham would be that Abraham would become the father of a great spiritual nation. And this was really the thrust of God. Remember, his commitment in Genesis 3 is to create a new opportunity, you might say, but it's really his answer to the problem of man's sin as he brings forth Christ, the second Adam. He uses Abraham in in a funnel-like sense, has Israel at first, but his whole purpose is to bring that blessing to the nations, never to keep it just with one group. And that's how Abraham becomes the father of a great nation, a spiritual nation. God blesses all the nations of the earth because of what he promises to Abraham's seed. All these promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus was literally Abraham's physical seed. Jesus was also the way that all nations would be blessed and be the spiritual seed. Because of Jesus, those who are, who are in him are the sons and the daughters of Abraham in the truest sense. So the significance of Abraham as it relates to Jesus, as he relates to Jesus, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, and we receive the benefits when we are in Christ. If you think of all the Old Testament and everything that's spoken uh, about Abraham and his physical descendants, the Israelites, they're given all sorts of stipulations and rules and regulations to follow. They fail at all of them. The only Israelite to ever follow every one of God's rules is Jesus. 
So he's God's son by God's sending, by Abraham being his father, and by his faithfulness to every one of the stipulations God ever gave. In Christ, we have the fulfillment of all the promises God makes to Abraham. There's another passage that I put before you there on the insert, Galatians chapter 3. That whole chapter is written by Paul, probably the first book of the New Testament written, other than maybe one of the Gospels in circulation at the same time. But of the letters of Paul, Galatians is probably his first. Early on, uh, after Jesus had ascended, the first Christians were usually Jewish converts, people that had the Bible and they saw how Christ uh, fulfilled all that the Old Testament forecasted, of course, by the work of the Spirit. And Gentiles, people who weren't born Jews, they started coming to faith in Christ. But there would be an issue at each of these churches where there would be a, a correction have to be made that, remember to the Jewish folks, this isn't about your being Jewish, this is about you being in Christ. And so Paul had to correct some of that thinking and to make clear what it meant to really be a son or a daughter of Abraham, to really be a child of the covenant, a child of promise, what that really means in connection to the promise given to Abraham. Look at Galatians 3, the passage that I have there on your insert. Galatians 3, starting at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's verse 6 and verse 7. Now notice, there is a unity here. Abraham was made right with God because he believed God. He trusted in God. He had faith in God. Abraham was not made right with God because he obeyed or because he did this or that work or because he was attractive to God so God picked him. No, the way Abraham was justified before God was he believed God's promise. And that's the setup for you and I. It's the same way we are made right with God. We believe his promise. We believe his gospel. We believe Christ. It says in verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, just another way of saying make them right with God, save them, redeem them, that God would justify the Gentiles by what? By faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So he's interpreting the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham, to mean that it was intended for the gospel to go forward because of what he was doing in Abraham's life and would fulfill when he brought Jesus. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. It's what it says. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if you have faith in Christ, it's a gift of God, but you are a son or a daughter of Abraham in the truest sense, in the way that most fulfills, most gloriously, the promises made to Abraham. That's the connection. Abraham laid hold of God's promises by faith, by belief, by trust in him. It's always been the method of receiving God's blessings and his promises. The gospel came first in Genesis 3.15. The gospel was made clearer to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in 15 and 17 and 22. Paul in Galatians spells out how this worked as Christ is shown to be the ultimate fulfillment of what God promised Abraham. And then look at, well, 
I will read for you verse 16 before I read this last section of verses. Verse 16 of Galatians 3 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul is going back, putting a little bit of a divine commentary on Genesis by describing that in essence, Jesus is that seed that was promised and and brought forth, and that seed connects to the seed that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. It's all one unit, and Abraham is an important link in all of it. It's a mistake to see the promises of Abraham as primarily ethnic. It is about God's work by his Spirit to make us sons and daughters of Abraham. The promises of God to Abraham were never meant to be true for only one ethnic group or nation. The promises of God were about something far more transcending than than ethnicity or race or citizenship in an earthly nation. That brings us to the passage that's listed last on the outline. Follow as I read and consider what it says. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that's a reference to the the Mosaic Law Code and its external application. There's more to the Mosaic Code than that. But we are no longer under a guardian, that thing that was holding them until Christ came. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And see the context, it's talking about as it relates to Jesus, it, doesn't, or it relates to God through Christ. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your category is on earth. In Christ, you're one. In verse 29, pivotal verse, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs. Heirs, according to the promise. If you're heirs, that means you have benefits coming to you. What are the benefits that we receive through the promises to Abraham fulfilled in Christ? And I have just a few listed. There are more. First of all, justification is because of what God has worked through Abraham. Now, it's the work of Jesus that actualizes it, but we learn of it through Abraham and God's work in Abraham's life. This is why uh, Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. You know, answering anybody who might think that righteousness that we provoke will make us right with God. By works we do. He's saying, not even Abraham was justified like that. He has something to boast about, if that's the case, Paul says. But not before God. Romans 4.3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why is Abraham right with God? Because he believed him. He believed in what God promised. Why are you right with God? Because you believe in what God has promised. And he's promised that your sins are forgiven if you trust in Christ. Justification comes through the revelation God brings in Abraham. But it's not just a legal thing 
there's something very wonderfully relational. We are also now adopted sons and daughters, and we see that even through Abraham. In Galatians 4, that text that I weave into prayers and into calls to worship and assurances of pardon, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yes, we're justified in a legal sense, but we receive adoption as sons and daughters for that matter. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Full ranking. Sons and daughters of Abraham are you and I. We're also promised an eternal inheritance. We're promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just going to be land that we get. It's going to be the new heavens and the new earth and an occupancy there with purpose and mission that God's given us. It'll look different than what it does today, thankfully, but it's far greater than anything Abraham could have even conceptualized. All the promises are greater than he could have conceptualized. All the purposes of God for your life are greater than you can imagine. They're greater than anything you could ask for or think about. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who of us can imagine what is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Everything we have is perishable. Everything we have is in some way defiled very soon after we drive it off the lot. Everything's everything's fading. But not so with the inheritance we have, this eternal inheritance. And you know why we know it's for sure is he gives a deposit of his Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, in Jesus We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Jesus, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We say, I don't feel like it. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel. The Spirit makes this so. It carries you through those feelings to tell you something else. Because it says in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know, there are probably a lot more benefits that we get from Abraham, through Abraham. In fact, I'm sure of it because it says in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with a bunch of spiritual blessings. You know that's not what it says if you've read Ephesians 1 lately. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Wait, before the foundation of the world. So in other words, the fall's no surprise to God. In other words, Genesis 3 is just the intruding of God's eternal plan into history. And then... Genesis 12 and the meeting up with this Abraham is no mistake. Nor is there any mistake ever recorded anywhere in the history that God superintends over, which is all of it, and it's all guaranteed by the Spirit of God himself. 
And Abraham gives us a picture of it. He gives us a reason to praise God about it. He gives us something to reflect upon. He gives us something to celebrate, something to deepen our faith, grow our faith in what he has done for us through Christ. What greater promise could you receive if you're Abraham than one securing your children's future? And that's the promise that Abraham received, but it was intending so much more than maybe even Abraham got about the spirituality of his children. What I'm saying is pretty wide. I want to narrow it down really personally. The promise of God to Abraham was about the gift of faith in Christ. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So when we talk about the covenant promises in our church, and we talk about them a lot, when we talk about the covenant promises around here, we're talking about calling upon God to live out work out his spiritual promises to Abraham here in the midst of his followers of Christ. When we claim God's covenant promises on our children's behalf, we mean to say that we call upon God to give our children faith in Christ. We don't think any magic happens to make that occur, but we call upon God based on his promises that he would make our children trust Christ. That's what we call upon him to do. What greater fulfilled promise could there possibly be And dear children of the church, you've been here a long time sitting in the pew, maybe you hear some of what I say, not all of it. I understand that. I'd be just like you, I was just like you in many respects. But please don't miss this part of the sermon. You're children of the promise. Your parents baptized you because they were placing you in this community for all the blessings it would pour out, and the main one being that you will always know the gospel. You will always know the only way to be right with God is Christ. That's a child of the promise. You are not an alien and a stranger outside this place. You are now coming close to the covenants of promise, and they're before you for you to grasp and to hold and to believe. That is what we ask God to do, is to give you faith in Christ. That's what we want more than anything else. That's what we want for the children of this church, in every church of Christ, that you would trust Christ alone for your life and your eternity. It says in Galatians 3.29, and I close with, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, heirs according to the promise. And the promise is the gospel. And the gospel is Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons, had Father Abraham. I'm one, by your grace, and so are all my brothers and sisters here who are trusting in Christ alone. Heirs according to the promise. Of all things to be heirs of, the promise of the gospel in Christ. It's the greatest thing we could possibly be heirs of. Make us to live as faithful heirs. Heirs of God through Jesus, give us gratitude and praise, especially during this season of reflection and celebration. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.